ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I hope you've got your tums ready because this is going to be a sour show. We have, I won't say every brewery that makes sour beer because I'll get angry emails from the people that have made some great sour beers that are not here, but in my opinion, the elite of the sour community of Cincinnati um, is, is here all in one room. I don't think this has ever happened before. Um, after tonight, I'm not sure if it'll ever happen again. Uh, <laughs> we will find out. Let's, uh, let's start things off just by running around the table. Everybody introduce yourselves. And we've got a couple more people that are going to show up here in a few minutes too. And, uh, um, they'll have to introduce themselves when they walk in, but, um, roll around the table from this direction. Everybody tell everybody who you are and where you're from and, um, what your favorite colors. Uh, my name is Josh Elliott. I work at Urban Artifact, running the wood aging program. You guys make sour beer there? Uh, yeah, intentionally. <laughs> hey, I'm Simon, uh, and I'm the uh, barrel dude here at Matry. Is that the official job title, barrel dude? Uh, online, uh, marketing put it as easy on the eyes, barrel dude, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a yes. Nightmare, right? yes. <laughs> so if you look it up, that's what it says really there. Can't really argue it either. <laughs> wow. Starting off well. Yes. Uh, Garrett from Streetside. Luke Cole from Rangai's Brewery. Um, I run the Sour Dungeon. This was also this show was your idea. You shot me an email and said, "Hey, wouldn't this kind of be cool if we could just get a bunch of people together and talk sour beer?" And I was like, I don't know if that'll work. That might work. I don't know. Let's just see. And here it is. So thank you for, for the idea. This is, uh, is going to be fun. It's super awesome. It's happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Roper. I am the dream facilitator and sour lover, taster, everything of uh, at Rivertown Brewery. Uh, Jason Roper, uh, Rivertown Brewery. Uh, favorite color is blue. <laughs> Thank you. You're the only one that followed That's the right. rules. <laughs> I, I listened. Um, so let's let's start things off. Let's just be really simple about this. What is sour beer? Like, how do we define what is um, what is a? I guess I should say what is the the real side of sour beer? You know, the stuff that we've got sitting in front of us, the stuff that you know sees those barrels or the fooders or whatever it may be. Um, anybody feel free to jump in anytime too. So. Um, just yes. to you, what 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 is this thing about? What is sour beer? So whenever I am talking to somebody about sour beer and they haven't had it before, I always like to, in my mind, there's two ways that sour beers happen, either accidentally or intentionally. And then out of those two places there, um, hopefully accidentally isn't happening anywhere. Um, but when we talk about intentionality, like we're all doing here, there's then two ways to do that. There's the spontaneous barrel-aged sour stuff, and then there is the more calculated fermentations and sour fermentations that happen in stainless steel. Somebody just walked in. Yes, it's Chase. Hi! Grab your headphones, introduce yourself. We just started, so. Hey, I'm Chase Legler from Sonder Brewing Company. Sorry I'm late. Uh, you got to give me your favorite color, too. Yeah, favorite color, too. Definitely blue. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> um, so, Sonder is also an interesting one because you guys have, as of right now, done one sour beer. Um, so, you know, I got a couple emails from people, um, not people here, but saying, you know, are they are they really part of the sour community? And um, I, I don't know that there's a debate to that, even though you guys have only done this one beer so far that is sour, just because of, um, obviously, your pedigree from uh, New Glarus and then um, Luke, who was with Garrett at Streetside for so long. Just uh, 
absolutely kicking ass. So, um, you're part of the sour community, even though you've only made one, in my opinion. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be part of it. Um, we're we're kind of talking just about what 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 makes um, sour beer what it is, and um, I think there's a lot of. I, I feel like there's a lot more information out there now with beer drinkers. I feel like it's not as confusing as it was at one time. I know uh, when you guys at Rivertown started up, there was a huge hurdle that you guys probably had to overcome of trying oh, to yeah. explain what this thing is and why their beer was sour and. Um, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think people kind of understand coming into it. They, they do to, to an extent. I mean, there's still definitely a lot of education, I think, that, um, that needs to take place. Because uh, even today, you'd think, you know, you take these beers into a bar or you're, you know, sampling it, even in our own tap room. And you get the, you know, is there something wrong with this or blah, blah, blah. Or I saw it had watermelons, so I bought it or... It's like, wait a second, did you, did you not read the label? Uh, <clears throat> I think that explains a lot. But, no, we definitely still see that. Um, but I think taking it to the next level, like the barrel aging and, um, you know, what, what goes into making some of these extremely intense beers, um, I, think, I think there's definitely a lot of, lot of room for education. How do you do that with, with beer drinkers, though? How do you, especially in a taproom, something like here at Madry or Rivertown, where there's so much going on, it's not necessarily that, that one-on-one um, sitting there and really diving in with you know, that, that drinker across the bar. It's somebody sitting at a table, they're eating their barbecue or their pizza or whatever. It's like, how, how, do, how do you do that? Well, first and foremost, you have to educate your staff. Uh, that's where it, a lot of it starts, uh, you know, and I'm using Rivertown as an example, but, you know, we have a, a full, you know, sit-down restaurant. So uh, people that, that come in, they're engaging with their server uh, constantly in order to be served, obviously. Uh, we're, we're, you know, not like just a tap room, so um, <clears throat> that, that makes things a little bit different. Uh, but, you know, once you educate one, I feel like then they start educating the rest of the table. But it's still a, a constant fight. Matter of fact, Luke and I were talking about this earlier about um, people just just their purchases in vessel alone. Uh, we found, at least at Rivertown, that the struggle has been large bottle or large can formats. Uh, it's just been a tough sell in this area. You know, if you go to California or you find yourself in New England, that's all you buy are 22 ounce bottles or 750 bombers or whatnot. Um, we were just discussing, you know, some of our future releases going to smaller format bottles just to be more approachable to uh, the everyday consumer. Well, and um, at Urban, I know you guys have kind of explored some different uh, formats for some of the stuff you're doing. And I think that was that was always interesting to me watching you guys start off as this brewery that that's all you're doing is these sour wild beers and kind of that 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 experience that the consumer has with that product as something that might be an everyday drinker versus that special purchase that you know you kind of look at and you're like oh i can't crack it up in today because it's not special enough you know and um i mean talk about that too kind of how you guys are, are are figuring that side of things out not just you guys but um in a bottle versus in a can i know um Sonder, you guys kicked it off with you know 16 ounce cans for your sour um why how how do you make that decision or uh for us anything that touches wood goes in a bottle and um everything that is a standard beer goes in a 12 ounce can and then for the most part anything that's like a variant on those uh standard beers goes in 16 ounce cans is it is it is it really just that that that's that cut and dry or is it yeah, is more it or less. based off of you know 
um, you know, like I said, that that experience from a consumer. Any, you know, anybody else, feel free to uh, to chime in with that too. For our yeah. for our future program at Sonder, we'll be we'll be doing yeah. uh, uh, bottle conditioning and, and bottles, and then cans will be pretty much anything that is going to be pasteurized, so that's a little bit cleaner. So we have plans of getting like a little gravity fed mahine filler in our little sour program, and then doing a, a true one hundred percent bottle conditioning process. For us at Rheingeist, uh, we'll stick with the 500 mils for our bottled releases for our bottle conditioning as well. Um, we're hitting pretty high pressures and high carb levels on them. That's awesome. Um, but we're only releasing about eight bottles this year. There'll be more draft in addition to that. And, you know, the draft are just carbon up reg, moving on through. And then the other, you know, all the cans, those are just upstairs in the fresh beer side of the brewery. It's 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 interesting to me to see and i think it's also kind of a shift in what you see on the shelf here around cincinnati you know at one time it was like half the shelf was filled up with those bombers and those special releases and now it seems like so much is moving into you know the be it the 60 ounce cans or just you know six packs or four packs of 12 ounces but um talked a little bit about kind of the the pasteurized versus the non-pasteurized side of of sour beer um and that, that kind of interests me too. I know that um, I think the you know the, the 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 exciting part of sour beer for a lot of the geeks is the the unpasteurized stuff. You know the things that are bottle conditioned or um, kind of evolve <coughs> over time. Um, so talk a little bit about those those two sides of things. Uh, really, the only pasteurization we are doing is on the pre-boil acidified beers. Um, and once again, those are up from the normal brewery. Downstairs, we're doing all live stuff. Um, some of the bottles, though, they're aging so elegantly. Like, even a year and a half, they're just still round and round. I thought the acidity might increase over time, but it really hasn't. So I think it was pretty terminal and stable. But, but aging them out has been fantastic on that live side. Yeah, we had looked into maybe doing something with pasteurization, but obviously it's pretty expensive to get a flash pasteurizer. Um, and same thing, some beers came out too acidic um, in bottles maybe for our taste or what was intended, but it seems like just over time, I mean, it does kind of mellow out if you just give it the right environment. Right. Um, let's, let's crack something up. Let's drink. Yeah. You, guys, you guys aren't talking enough for me. We need to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody grab something there that uh, is exciting. Anybody? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, this is a Rivertown beer, a Lambic. This is, uh, this is actually a bottle of 2010, so this is a nine-year aged bottle. Um, I got a sip of this back in, what was it, 2016 for the uh, groundbreaking ceremony, and it right. blew me away. Um, we <laughs> <laughs> oh, you thought that was the end of it, huh? <laughs> what vintage? Yeah, we need a... I'll go get it. Yeah. Uh, next, <laughs> we we won't. Should we dive into the uh, the lambic debate a little bit? I've I've kind of uh, been beaten to hell on that in the show um, out at Jackie O's about um, lambic in the United States versus lambic being a uh, a Belgian only product. I mean, well, obviously, we we know that Rivertown has their 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 thoughts on it. And I mean, it depends. I mean, it, it's it's. It's an open debate. I mean, we can debate over Kolsch, too. I you know, yeah, 100%. We can over all these different... I mean, really, for us, we were just paying homage to a style of beer. Um, we're not... <clears throat> there's no claims on our end to say, hey, look, you know, we own Lambic, and that's blah, blah, blah. No. Um, <clears throat> you, can't, you can't really own a style of beer. 
Uh, as far as we were concerned, when we started manufacturing that product, no one knew what Lambic was. We were opening a lot of people's eyes to it. What is Lambic? Lambic. Yeah, well, just if we can break it down to that. It, well, it, it comes back to the Cine Valley. So you had the town of Lisenbeek, which was in the Cine Valley, and that was short for Lambic. And that was uh, where they, the home of spontaneous fermentation, or where it's all kind of come from. Um, obviously, you know, that even opens more debate because breweries like Cantillon, which are very well known, are not in Vlesenbeek. So even though they're making goose styles in Lambiques, they're technically not in Vlesenbeek. So, you know, it... But again, I, I look at Belgian-style beers as, you know, um, the, the mother of invention. We just throw everything into it. You know, before American brewers uh, started making all these different beers, and, well, hell, we just did it last week, throwing donuts in the mash and doing things like that, you know, you had everyone in Belgium doing it. You know, I mean, everything from candies to, you know, um, different type of herbs and, uh, well, you name it, it probably went in the mash at some point. So it's... You know, for you guys, it's it's more about the process behind what the beer is, and and that's what makes it alambic. And well, the way way we look at it is keeping tradition to style. So we um, we use and always have used turbid mashing when we make any of our goose lambic uh, base styles. Uh, we've always kept to the same format on our base when we make them, uh, and then we've always stuck to uh, spontaneous fermentation. We've never added yeast. What do you mean by that? added bacteria to... How do you guys do that? What's that? How do you guys do that? Uh, well, several different ways. So some of them we've done in um, open tubs. So we've done open air fermentation that way. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we we start in fodor. Like, we would always start with a naked fodor, usually. Uh, leave the top of the door open and start spontaneous that way. Uh, then we'd branch off. We'd see what we liked out of the barrels we didn't like. Come back in again naked after draining the tank and start again. How do you keep, uh, my, like, how do you keep that from tasting like garbage? What do you mean? Like, uh, so we do, we start a lot of our spontaneous cultures in individual jars, mm-hmm. and I throw away 99% of them. Uh, we've tossed quite a few barrels. <laughs> yeah, but like, you're, you're talking about like a naked fodor. That's huge. Correct. Um, well, first and foremost, our original fodor that we had was a, uh, a 20 hectoliter, so it wasn't necessarily a huge size, but... Uh, once you kind of develop that consistency, um, you know, going from batch to batch, you find it becoming more consistent. Um, but, you know, we did uh, um, three years ago, I think it was, we did a, a project with, um, uh, oh my gosh, my brain, it's been a long day, <laughs> with uh, Levi Funk and Funk Factory Guzzeria. And they brought down... Um, uh, they're open, open fermenter, and we started life in, in one of those. And you know, we've got I think 18 or 19 uh, barrels of that batch. A couple of them I'm unsure of are going to make it into the final blend. Mm-hmm. You know, just because it takes on a life of its own. So it definitely does happen. I mean, we've we've experienced batches. We we just moving when we moved from Lachlan up to Monroe, we lost 30 or 40 barrels just from agitation and oxidation. Just from those barrels being. Oh, oh, <laughs> what was that? Danny Jerry Jankowski. You were alive. I'm awake now. Did that hit somebody in the head? That's funny. 
Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but riffing off where we were a second ago, one of the coolest things, like looking at around the table, I feel like we're all approaching our programs a bit different, and I think that very much comes through in our products. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, that's a really, really cool thing. I, I don't do a lot of spontaneous. We've done some, but really we're controlling our cultures pretty much all the way through. And, and we do in um, quite a few of our products, just the, the base that we use for the goose, the Lambic, um, and I think, no, Triumvirate was pitched, but uh, I was looking through to see if we had any of the bottles I thought that was goose. Um, but uh, we have another one that we use blackberries in, uh, and we've done a creek as well. But that those are the only ones that we've done with spontaneous. Everything else has been, you know, we'll intentionally pitch. But that's usually what you'll see in our can. Same thing you guys are doing at Rheingeist, um, you know, with, with basically like pasteurizing prior to fermentation, that kind of stuff, just lacto. It's it's interesting to me to, to like like you mentioned Luke that, that you know the, the the different ways to get to this this end result of what this beer is and I feel like there's a lot of um, uh, there, there's a lot of like geekiness around uh, what makes a sour beer and a lot of people that get very defensive about this is the right way to do it anything else is 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 completely wrong and it doesn't make it this or it doesn't make it that and. Um, I, I, to me, it's it's so counter to the entire um, the entire reason that all of this stuff exists. It's not it, you know when when you know brewers first started making these beers, they weren't doing it because somebody doing it this way because somebody told them this is how you're supposed to do it. It's just how it worked. It's how things. That's it's how it. It's how they got the result that they wanted to. So it's in you know today's kind of modern craft beer world where there's a whole lot more science behind it than I think there was then. Um, it's fun to see those different roads to get to that, that end product for me. For, for us in-house, um, we started playing with Sours in 2013, but it was a lot of experimentation. Uh, you know, we, we've, we were, felt real strong on the fresh barrel side, and those empty barrels, when we were done with them, we'd bring them down, fill them with wort or finished beer, um, and then try all these different cultures. I had probably 40 or 50 cultures in-house at one point in time through experimentation. We just kept weeding out the weaklings and stepping up and, you know, embracing the ones that we really liked and growing them on, on up through. We really only use three primary cultures anymore. Three primary cultures and about three bases. There's little variances here and there, but that's about what we've limited it down to at this it's, point. So your, your cultures that you guys are using in, in the, the Outer Reaches series, are those things that you guys developed in-house? Is that stuff that you you collected? You know, I, I know Urban's made a, a, a whole, um, a big point of kind of educating people of, of how they're getting those cultures. And I don't see a lot of that coming out of Ryan Guys for lots of different reasons. Ryan Guys is a very big machine at this point, the way it's working. But um, is that stuff that you guys have... So, so our three cultures that we're uh, really maintaining, we've got that back in 2013, that sour started in a carboy, and we used uh, two smack packs of Rosalaire. We picked up from our friends at Listerman, uh, let that go, and just kept repitching that on out. It's got to be on like the 18th generation by now. Uh, my buddy Mitch here and I, we were talking, uh, we want to do a side-by-side -side experiment, get a fresh Rosalair pitch, and then our culture cultured up and just run them side-by-side -side to really analyze the mutation of that original culture. Um, 
uh, the other culture, or another one of the cultures, uh, we actually <clears throat> cultured a yeast from downstairs in the basement of Brett, um, and then trained our lacto up. Uh, we're souring at about 20 IBUs now. They're kind of frightening, Damn. but awesome. Wow. Um, and then the I third culture. I don't understand why that's frightening. Uh, Is it? <laughs> it's good for us in the basement, as long as we stay in the basement. Right on, right on. Um, and then the third culture, um, it's that same lacto blend, and we're using uh, Brett Brooks too from Inland Island uh, out of Colorado. They're awesome. They're they're really nice. Have you noticed any changes in the Rosalera blend over time? Is it getting drier or less dry? It's changed a lot. Uh, not necessarily on its on on its attenuation or whatever, but it's gotten so grapey, wine like, mm. um, and. The sharp pediness has really trimmed out to a nice smooth acidity now. That's really cool. Does anybody want to talk about how they got into this side of beer? Um, were you guys doing this on a homebrew scale at some point? I mean, I, I, I know some of you were, but... Um, or was this something just as the brewery grew and kind of evolved, it was like, hey, we should probably be kind of dabbling in this too. I mean, obviously, you guys were from the beginning doing it, but... <laughs> I, I had never brewed sour beer before I started working Artifact. I had no interest in it. I mean, I really liked uh, Rodenbach, but otherwise, it was it was just like a new experiment for me. So what what got you then into Urban Artifact? I mean, was it just the uh, the unknown of, it, like... Yeah, uh... I was, I was pretty bored where I was working, and um, I could tell that they had not hired anybody yet, that there, it was just it was, it was kind of open, so the job was going to be whatever I made out of it. And then um, uh, I really liked the culture and got along really well with the people I interviewed with, and that, I mean, that, that was it. I mean, how, I mean, how much harder could it be? Right. Anybody else? Yeah, with, uh, with Madtree, um, I was brewing just all the clean beer at the old place, and... Uh, it was just kind of everyone was sharing the position of like who can fill <laughs> barrels this day with just just clean beer, um, and just eventually, you know, we were trying to do portfolio brewing, trying kind of dip our feet into everything, and eventually it was just we need to start at least experimenting with sour beer. Um, I just kind of volunteered for it, and eventually it kind of became a position, um, you know. But it, it allowed for a lot of experimentation and stuff, and that creates a lot of innovation. You know, it's it's been fun doing it that way. Well, and and. You are just kind of positioned back there at 1.0, right? Yep. That's where all the barrels are. <laughs> um, it feels like a very lonely place. Yeah, <laughs> we have uh, we sublease an office to a t-shirt printer, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, it, it gets lonely, but it's it's quiet too, which is nice. It actually, sounds really nice. It is actually. Yeah, I can listen to what I want to. It's nice. <laughs> Anybody else want to talk about how you got into it? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, it started off as a home brewer. After uh, six months of home brewing, I realized that everyone could produce a stout in an IPA, and I was just like, I'm not going to go and try to compete against that. So um, about five years ago is when I started, and I realized, well, at least in my head, I thought sours were kind of the next big thing. So I went all sour, so that meant that I was doing spontaneous captures in my parents' backyard, doing true method tradition, so true turbine mash, spontaneous, fermented outside my parents' house, hit it in the carboy. Um, at the time, I was actually working at General Gyms, and um, one of the reps for PBS, her husband actually worked for, it was called Double Helix, I believe, up in Dayton, um, and they would actually plate out my spontaneous captures, and then I would actually then recreate those in my carboys. Um, then from there, going to Mount Carmel, uh, there wasn't any sour produce, pro production allowed, so I was just doing 
multiple brews weekly, actually. And at a time, I had about 25-gallon carboys, 15-gallon oak barrel that I had a, a method traditional lambic in that I was fermenting out. Uh, and then from there, you know, um, I actually kept those cultures rolling. So uh, one thing I'm actually kind of proud at Sonder is we actually have two Brett strains that I've been using since 2015. So they're probably up around 20 generations each. Uh, Brett Brooks and Brett Anamala. Um, so I gifted that to the company. Uh, I got them plated and slanted out on uh, through Omega. So that's actually one of our house proprietary cultures. Um, and then I've been using a mixed culture for... Obviously, it's drifted pretty aggressively, but every single time I would re-inoculate the carboy, I'd always give off, you know, wet gravel, wet stone, incredibly aggressive minerality and acid. So we got that banked as well. So my beginnings were sours. So for over five years, you know, I don't count home brewing as a professional hobby. It was just really just fun. Um, but then going from my first true wild beer was actually at Mount Carmel. Uh, I convinced Mike Dewey to let me bring my bread strains in to save one of our quads. It actually got bottled. Never got released, unfortunately. Uh, it's called the Clairvoyant. Um, that turned out really nice. It was uh, super dope. Yeah. It was so fucking good. Yeah, Very that good. was actually how I... Um, so after Garrett tried that, so when I was at Streetside, I would show Garrett my sours, and I was like, dude, I can do it. And um, the Clairvoyant was one of the beers, and he was like, fucking roll, dude. So, and that's Are you sure it never got released? 100%. Because there's a beer in the cooler right now called the Clairvoyant. Well. Is it just a different beer? From Mount Carmel? Mm-hmm. They released it? Uh, they released something called the Clairvoyant in bottles. It's a quad. When? I don't know. But it's oh, in the I cooler. Know. I knew they bottled it. <laughs> yeah, but they called it the Duke, not Luke. <laughs> oh, that's what I was saying. Yeah. No, I know, I know they bottled it, and all I know is I didn't, I didn't hear it got released, though. It's, it's there. All I know is that my Brett strains got up to 13% after it stalled out, so Jeez. I was pretty impressed with that. So those are the same cultures I have banked for Sonder. But, uh, yeah, my beginnings was all through home brewing, um, and then just a ton of trial and error, and a ton of dumping beer. Well, that, that, that seems to be a, uh, a common uh, theme <laughs> when you start digging into the side of things and the, the unknown of this, this, this wild kind of um, thing that, yeah. can, that, that can turn out one way or it can turn out completely different. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think of what we're drinking so far? Oh, I Anybody want to? <laughs> I really like this Lambic. It's yeah. got that traditional Cantillon blue cheese kind of characteristic that I really dig. It's really nice to kind of Thank get you. that. Thank you. Yeah, we, I, we haven't dug into this one in a while. We've got a few yeah, case maybe stashed. But, um, yeah, no, I, um, so for me, I got into, the first batch of sour I ever brewed was in 2002. Um, and the way I got into it was a little bit different. Most people are like, boy, I really, really like that style of beer. Or, um, I, I like sours or there's the cool side. Um, I was married to an interesting person and uh, no not Lindsay that's my ex-wife um and she found an interesting beer called Lindemann's um that she loved and at the time had I known that all I had to do was really put some syrup into a bottle with some um phosphoric acid or lactic acid I probably wouldn't be sitting here today so I set off on this little voyage to kind of make this beer, and I read a, a whole bunch on it. And um, the following year is the year that I brewed the long shot winning beer, uh, which was the uh, Elderflower beer that won in 07. 
Um, but that had been aged for about three or four years. Well, at any rate, long story short, I made these beers, traditional style, spontaneous fermentation. She absolutely hated them, and I fell in love. End of, end of story. <laughs> and then and it, it, it's funny to me how far, especially here in Cincinnati, how far ahead of kind of what was going on uh, Rivertown was at the time. Whereas you look at the way things are now, and if Rivertown was opening now, what that would look like versus what it it did look like or it, you know does look like it's 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 interesting to me and it's um, are there other cities that have as uh, robust of a sour culture with breweries as as we do in Cincinnati like with this many breweries that are really really diving into kind of this side of things I mean I I don't know it's a I think Portland. I don't know though. I don't. But, well, I it's don't been know. a few years since I've been there, but I remember every single brewery or craft beer bar was like five IPAs. I just picture a bunch of sours. Yeah. I've never been. No, there was a good so, amount yeah. there last time I was there. I feel like Chicago has a really incredible sour scene going on. I remember when. So I worked for Goose Island way back forever ago in 2007 for a few years, and that's how I was first introduced to sours. Was through Matilda and Juliet, and I remember Greg Hall. I, I mean, I have a picture of the very original Matilda in a barrel aging with Britannomyces, and Mary Pelletieri worked there at the time. And so I got involved in this great culture. And because of what was going on at Goose Island and the people who have worked there throughout the years and then consequently like branched off and created their own <coughs> breweries that have absolutely incredible sours going on. But it's been amazing to see how Cincinnati has evolved, and it's not anymore a, like, oh, what is that type thing, to, oh, this is really nice. Um, I also believe that Miami and Florida is a really burgeoning market for sours. We're getting exposed to some of them up here, which have been phenomenal, but I feel like there's something about some of these sour breweries in Miami specifically, like Jay Wakefield is doing incredible things, MIA is doing some incredible things, and the way that they use real fruit in their sours is like next level amazingness. It um, it's 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 fun to me as a beer drinker because I, you know, I very distinctly remember that first sip of Alambic that I had. It was, you know, just that, that, that very early on in your kind of craft beer journey and you see it on the shelf at Jungle Gyms or wherever you are and, you know, here's, here's something I haven't heard of before and you get home and you crack it open and it's it's horrible and you, you can't figure out what's going on and, like, I, I I have this really distinct, you know, memory of that and then to see the things that are happening now and to see new drinkers coming into a community like this where there is this really I feel like a very healthy sour thing happening here where you can you can ease into it and you have people that are there to guide you into it and show you this and it's it's just really fun it's a it's a very fun time to be a beer drinker um, for some of the yeah with our program still you know being only a year and a half old since lunch I suppose I really got to thank Rivertown and Urban for you know opening those doors up to the community they both spearheaded them in different ways and it's, I, I really feel like it's made our line more approachable to um, the consumers around town, for sure. Dude, you're totally right. We had a really hard time selling beer before we started adding fruit to it. Well, I mean, I can remember when Urban was opening, how many people 
were kind of sitting there whispering behind your back saying this won't work you know you can't yeah. you can't nobody wants to drink sour beer in cincinnati like it's not gonna no <laughs> and it's like it, we're super excited we're like sour yes <laughs> and then you you see this now and it's like you know you've got breweries like sonder opening up with a you know a massive fooder just sitting right there in front of it. like it it it's fun it's 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 just really exciting um for some of the breweries that are kind of trying to to balance um, that sour side versus the non-sour side, like how how do you justify that? Especially as like, young breweries like you guys, um, where uh, to stash a bunch of beer in in barrels to to age away for God knows how long, then who knows if it's going to turn out? Kind of thing. Like how do how do you how do you balance that? Does that make sense? <laughs> Sell a lot of IPAs to (laughs) (laughs) afford the ability to, that's kind of how we were at first. It was really um, trying to get um, just a clean beer to brew to be able to sour um, on the system at 1.0 back in the day. We pretty much did just have to, just got to keep selling psychopathy and lift, be able to get the money that, you know, the risk that we may have to dump this or that we are going to have to have some, uh, sit in some real estate for a while and. You know, eventually it worked out, but... Well, especially with, with Madtree at that time, too, where things were, like, I mean, you guys were running that system all the time. Oh, and yeah. It was, like, it, to find the little the little gaps here and there, they, like, we can do this, it might not turn yeah. out. Like, that's... <laughs> that was really difficult, yeah. Once, once this place opened up, um, and we were only brewing at the other place a couple times a week, that, that helped a ton. And now we have the 15-barrel uh, pilot system here. It's been awesome working with our production staff, just saying, here's what I need, and they get it done. Well, I know, Garrett, the last time we were out there at Streetside talking to you kind of about your barrel program and, and kind of just the, the overall program, uh, figuring out kind of, again, that balance of do we lean here? Do we lean here? Do we, how do we, you know, people, people love, you know, Demogorgon. Do we dedicate this time and this space to something like that? Or do we dedicate the time and the space to something like the other stuff that people love? You know, how, how does that balance I mean, the nice part about sours is that you can ferment them in barrels, so that doesn't take up any fermentation or stainless fermentation space. But it's yeah, a barrel space, which is but also like valuable. For, I mean, for me, that's kind of space that's already dedicated. Um, I, I mean, it's a balancing act that everybody kind of has to figure out. Um, I, we've, I, we just brewed clean barrels again two weeks ago or brewed in to or brewed a beer that was going into clean barrels again we're doing demogorgon again uh next week or two weeks from now um i mean it sucks but (laughs) 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 like that's pretty much all it is like we finding time and space is the one of the hardest things to do when you own a brewery so uh figuring figuring all that out is always interesting and Fun. Right. <laughs> well, and I, I assume with, with Sonder, um, because they brought Chase into it and they brought Luke into it, I assumed that there wasn't a, a question that sours were going to happen. It was, it was not a, a fight to say, hey, we really would like to do this. It was already in the vision of it. Yeah, I think, I think Garrett hit it on the head with it being uh, balanced out. Um, so I always kind of look at it in a number sequence where if we're doing X amount of barrels of clean beer and, you know, that can pay for our sour program, 
in a responsible way. I, you know, I think I think for for all craft breweries to to make good sours is really important, so the consumer can get acclimated to it and just realize what it's, what a good sour is. Um, so I think you know, investing as as we grow, you know, we have plans to invest in a PCR and and to make sure our microbiology side is is good on the clean side because that can be very detrimental to a brewery getting an infection on the clean side and just. You know, the way that we're reusing our yeast, like most breweries do, with cone-to-cone, slurry pitching and everything, you can have a huge infestation that you're being forced to dump here. Um, so, like, right now, you know, for us being a startup still, you know, investing in the, the, the Weinstephan orange broth, the media is, is huge for us because that's that's our saving grace. You know, that's that's telling us that, yeah, we're, we're doing good. We're, we're, we're keeping that separation and... Uh, if we're doing a, a pasteurization on it, we're killing it off and we're holding it and we're doing things right. So I think, you know, like Gary said, having that balancing of microbiology, um, clean side and sour side is pretty important. I, uh, you just said that you think it's important for like every brewery to start a sour program. And I no, kinda... I just think it's important for craft breweries to make good sours. If, okay. if you're going to that have makes more sense. a sour program. Yeah. I... What kind of, and this is this is more specifically for you guys at Sonder, what kind of uh, pressure is there, too, from kind of everybody that's kind of watching what you're doing? Uh, I mean, they know, here in town especially, people know that, that Luke can make a heck of a sour. Um, people are assuming that, that um, you've got something really great up your sleeve because of where you came from. Um, and I, I feel like it's it's. I mean, Urban probably had it too when you guys came out of the um, the door swing and saying this is all we're going to do. Where there's now this 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 pressure of you've got to do something really incredible. Um, you're, you're you're in this community where there's really great sours being made. You know what? How do you how do you balance that 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 pressure of of what you're releasing, especially with you guys coming out with Mela? I mean, um, there's there's a there's big kind of bar that you have to get over for that that first one saying here here we are here's here's what we do yeah for for me i think there's a question in there somewhere yeah no (laughs) there is for for me personally i'm 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 not on social media i don't really track any kind of feedback like that uh my business partners do and uh, luke definitely is more involved with social media so i think he felt more of that pressure especially being a local kid you know I, I came from Wisconsin so I don't really know anybody here um, so I didn't feel a lot of pressure on it my my mindset was yeah we'll get it up and running um, but we need to focus on our clean beers to make sure that we are selling our beer um, before we just one make a shitty sour or two worst case scenario we've infected our whole brewery with just doing things half-assed and I mean coming into it um I knew what Saunders' business model was, so I wasn't blindsided coming in and be like, oh, man, we have all these core beers. I knew that core was, core styles had to be figured out. We have to find our bread and butter in order to stay afloat. We're a very big operation, and that's how we're planning on going, and I knew that from the very beginning, which was another reason why I went to go there. Um, but in the same sense, um, yeah, the pressure, I mean, it was there, but... <laughs> Being Chase and I being able to talk with each other and just being honest with each other and then, you know, just rolling with it. Like, he put a lot of trust into me knowing that I do have an understanding of what I'm doing. Um, 
I mean, Mellow just came out, but we also just came out with our first mixed culture saison uh, with Brett. So that was just tap yesterday. Um, so we just inoculated the fooder again with our second, you know, mixed culture beer. You know, we are getting a stainless tank in the like, next couple of months, and that's going to be our next. So, I mean, like, we have them rolling. It's just all, all it really came down to was is I didn't need them out now. I just needed to start them, and that was it. And once I had them started, then I could just do the rest from there. Um, and luckily, you know, Chase is a really understanding guy, and he was like, yeah, okay, I get it, you know. So we have to put a little bit down right now, and we'll, we'll get it rolling. And then once the product is ready, then we'll go there. And, you know, luckily everything has been kind of been rolling the way it should. But on the sense of using cultures that I've had since I was a home person in 2015, I, am, I understand how they operate. You know, I've used them so many times. I know how they op- you know, I know how fast they ferment their attenuation and everything. And so when I told Chase, hey, this Saison Brett will be ready in three months, it was ready in three months. It hit stable and we uh, conditioned the keg and it was out by month four. So it's just, you know, being able to come to him and telling him, hey, I understand what I'm doing. I know these cultures, but him also believing in me and understanding that, hey, look, this kid actually knows what he's talking about. You know, he's not just kind of just blowing it up, but also just knowing that I don't have to just do all these quick sours and everything just to kind of make a point. Like, we talked in the very beginning, yeah, there was pressure, but we want to make sure the first round we come out with is pretty gangbusters. I think Mello speaks to that, and fortunately we didn't bring a crowd of the Brett Saison tonight, but that also speaks to our mixed culture fermentation program as well. Soft, subtle, gets to the point, nice Brett, a little bit of acid. It's not aggressive, but it's a very great, easy entry point, and that's just kind of what him and I understood and made a mutual respect on, and that's kind of how it happened. Is there kind of going on the, that whole idea of, of the pressure from kind of the outside community looking in with, with Rivertown? How do you guys deal with that? How do you, you know, Rivertown, the, the name, the, 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 the brewery itself, in a lot of ways, when people think of it, they think back to the Lambic and, you know, the, the, those things. How does that how does that factor into what you do now versus, I mean, it's, it doesn't think about a restaurant now too, which, right. It it doesn't, it never has. Um, kind of like, you know, um, with any new brewery, um, you know, I'm I'm sure there are places out there that are just cash cows looking to cash in on the craft beer movement. You know, there's, there's the 200 investors in a place that wants to make the next IPA and that kind of stuff. Um, we've never uh, put our focus on trying to reinvent the wheel or come up with something so radical and over the top. I think tradition, um, consistency for us is important. Uh, you know, we when we built our place in Monroe, um, we built a separate uh, souring area, separate everything. Uh, all of our piping is separate. Uh, we knew that we wanted to continue on manuf- making these types of beers, and we kind of needed a place to do that. And we wanted we created the right environment, um, and we just pay attention to what we do. It, it's not about again, it's not about having you know the next berry that someone hasn't seen or using the next flavoring that someone hasn't used. It's it's about being consistent with the product. When you're in a city like Cincinnati that has, you know, the the places like you guys that have this 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 product that, you know, you've been brewing since 2010, you know, that that you know. And then you've got places like Urban that does have, you know, this 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 crazy fruit 
thing going on. You've got, you know, the the guys at Ryan Geist that it seems like they've got all of this 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 power behind them from this machine that, you know, is is giving them the freedom to kind of play around. Like how how does that affect all of you guys or does it do, is is it that easy just to put the blinders on and do your thing or do you find yourself looking around and saying, "All right, well we don't need to do this because these guys are already doing it." Um does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I don't think there's anyone at this table that looks at one of the other breweries and go, oh, gosh, we got to do what he's doing because that's the next wave. I think you're you're looking at a table of breweries and, and guys that are a bit more mature in this industry. You know, we kind of do our own thing. You know, Urban Artifact, they came out of the gates just doing sours. That took a lot of guts. Still takes a lot of guts. I mean, it's it just dumb. does. You know, so it's it, same thing. I mean, I don't think that um, any of us uh, are worried about what the next guy's doing. Like, I was excited to try Chase and, and Luke's Mella tonight. You know, I, I figured they'd bring it. I haven't had a chance just because I'm always in that always in the brewery. I never get to get out and try beers. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's exciting, and I'm excited to try it. I'm not looking at it like, oh, boy, can I – make this same beer how can i make it better and and compete i i just don't look at it that way and i don't think these guys do either is is that the same for everybody if i'm worried about anything it's the jackasses packaging unfermented beer (laughs) you guys are you guys are very big on that one (laughs) the uh the the time bombs that are in people's trunks and being shipped through the u.s postal service and (laughs) i I have a quick question for you is that pleblius Pleplius, yes. Pleplius, yes. Right. Just checking. <laughs> my, um, my all-time ultimate hero is Zane Lamprey. Yeah, we'll yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, yeah. He's got a podcast called Zane's World. Anybody oh, listening, all, yeah. Yeah, just I know go all subscribe about to it. that too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's all consumer-driven, right? I mean, isn't like everything we do as brewers consumer-driven? But that's so, that's I mean, kind of my question. When it comes down to it, it's like. If it sells, then make it, you know? And it doesn't matter who made it first. It's, like, what's selling at that moment? Like, we all know passion fruit for a while was the hot thing. And the consumer was just digging it. And you see these things, they're cyclical. They come around, they go around. and Dude, you can tell what's coming up just by looking at what uh, organ, <laughs> organ fruit yeah, is, organ is organ. I subscribe <laughs> to their, their mailing list just for yeah, that key reason. Lime, key I got lime key lime on the way. way. Yeah. And, and yeah. like blood orange beers two years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, it's not... To be honest with you, with our program, I'm not really looking forward to fruit. That's actually what I'm trying to avoid for our sour program to start um, because it's too much. There's so much fruit out there. I want to do something different. So actually, I kind of like to watch everyone else because then I can do it all differently. So when I see what they're doing, I'm saying, okay, cool. So if I got an amphora, no one has an amphora, so I can do clay aging sours. Okay, I can get a cement egg. I could do something like that. What other aging processes can I do? Rewind just a little bit there for me. (laughs) An an amphora? So, yeah, so uh, amphoras are used. um, They're used for We don't have one yet. No. It's in the talks now. Um, no, it's it's uh, it's used for orange wine. So in Georgia, the country, uh, orange wine is a unfermented. So if you look at red wine, red wine is fermented on the skins. If you look at white wine; it's fermented with the juice and stainless. So orange wine is white wine fermented on the skin spontaneously in clay. So when you look in Georgia, 
Georgia uses amphoras that are buried in the ground that have a clit or that have a wax layer between the um, the clay. Sweet. It's so like bog butter. Like, like I'm sorry. Like bog butter. Bog butter? Yeah. I don't know what that is. People in like uh, the UK used to bury big things of butter because it would mm. store out in the like uh, in the peat. Yeah, except for, for like a fermentation control. Yeah. I was thinking then, like kimchi. Isn't that that kind of don't, isn't that like in some kind of pots in the ground or something too? There's also people who buried stuff, yeah. But anyways, if you look in Italy, you know they have forests <laughs> that are above ground and everything. Um, so when I see other people doing fermentation techniques, I'm thinking, what can I do different? So I'm looking at ancient world. So cement eggs, um, clay eggs, wood eggs. Uh, amphoras, you know. Well, you think of an egg that has no dead space, so it's a continuous fermentation process, so therefore you're actually getting more if I were to put it into a barrel or to stainless. So, you know, it's different. Um, but anyways, uh, so I'm looking at that. What herbs can I use? What spices? What teas? What, you know, what can I do differently that isn't being done? And so when I watch everyone else doing what they're doing, I'm saying, cool, I'm going to do the opposite. And that's how I kind of think how I should do it, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, that that's kind of where my mind goes on. Not necessarily the, the the copying what people are doing, but that that freedom of if somebody is doing this very well, that freedom to say, all right, we don't have to do that because we know that that exists and people are are enjoying that. So let's let's do this, and um, especially in something that is so kind of specialized as this the sour beer thing is. Like it's it's interesting to me to um, it's. I f- in my mind, at least, I feel like it would factor in more than um, in other other realms of beer, maybe. And maybe I'm maybe I'm not. I'm wrong. But is that one of the reasons you guys land on like back sweetening? We don't back sweeten. That passion fruit beer isn't back sweetened. No, that's fermented out. Really? Yeah. I keep my blinders on pretty much, but we've got so much creative freedom. It would be dumb to chase somebody. Like, we've got all these Legos to work with. We're going to build a castle. You know what I mean? I, I love that. And kind of like what you were saying, I mean, I, I love that. There's so much to work with and, you know, just a lot of experimentation and figuring out and definitely all, all kinds of places to put your thumbprint on things. I, I love that. I, I think that's a great part of being in this industry, you know, specifically the sour side of it. I, I for one, was, you know, and, and this this may sound like a like a dig, but it's not. I was surprised at the sour program from Ryan Geist when it started. And I promise it's not a dig. <laughs> it it doesn't have to be as good as it is. And um, especially that Tangerine Beams is one of my favorite beers that I've ever tasted out of Ryan Geist. It's incredible. It's especially this time of year you get these nice warm days. It's it's perfect. And it, it it's it's surprising for me when you've got. Uh, a brewery that's that's hung its hat on on truth and things like that that this is existing there and it's 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 again it's exciting it's fun it's it's neat to see these things happening you know mad trees is very similar too when you know uh when when these sours are released they're not released nearly enough by the way but um (laughs) it it doesn't have to exist at a place like that and it's it's fun to to see that it can and it does and that um these 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 places that have this other stuff going on um i don't know if allow it to happen is the right word but um are are, are willing to, to let it happen absolutely it's not a it's not a necessity to have it um for a brewery like us we've got 
you know, six or seven core beers on that huge draft list up there, and the rest are all one-offs that we're knocking out every day. So, yes, it's, it's a, a privilege that they, uh, the powers that be let us kind of mess around like we do. Simon was hitting on this earlier. Truth is, our core beers, you know, float us as well. But we're not trying to take the world over with the outer reaches. We literally just did it for a coolness factor and geeked on it super hard. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's kind of the cool thing too is mm-hmm. like you let your core brands kind of pay for the sours and you let the, the brewers, you know, kind of develop what they want to make and just go with it. Oh, yeah. yeah, it Absolutely. puts zero pressure behind the sour program and dump, <coughs> you know, if you have to dump something, it's there's not a lot of pressure behind it which you can't be rushing to making somewhere that has to take time yeah yeah or just the the variables i mean the barrels just allow so much oxygen in Mm -hmm. there's only so much you can do right so you know that kind of goes back to like the only reason in my mind to get fooders is to create some sort of consistency and take out some variables uh because there just are so many with sour and wild beers so you kind of create that consistency core through the fooders and then experiment and have fun in barrels. Uh, if, you know, hopefully you can get to that point. Uh, but that all takes up space. And, right. And sometimes you come up with something you didn't think was going to be as, as good as it was. And I'm actually going to pull Mitch into this one for a minute because I remember being down at Rock Bottom when you worked there. And you had, I think it was... Bach or an Oktoberfest, you had one that you barrel aged and somehow it got soured. I don't remember how it got. Yeah, that was yeah, it was a Doppelbach. That's right. Uh, and it, that was distillers like that had to be some sort yeah. of distillers lacto. But that was that beer. I remember it, it was, was amazing. Good. Didn't you, didn't that was you an like award for that? Too? No, it was no? just a really. I mean, the, oh, man. just a really good accident. I don't think I'd been in Rock Bottom as many times as I was when that, <laughs> that came out. It was available. Yeah, it was a good accident. Why, you know, for, for all of you guys, like, why why is this the side of beer that you lean so heavily into? Why why is sour beer so exciting for you? And well, I think, like, I, th- I just think it's the evolution of, like, American craft beer is, like, you know, IPAs have been figured out. There's West Coast, East Coast, Hazy, you know, you name it, it's all been done. And this is, like, the next thing that Americans can try and accomplish. You know, and that goes back to talking about calling something this or that. It's just, I mean, Americans are going to destroy history right now as far as craft beer goes and just try and make whatever tastes good, right? It's pretty basic to me when it comes down to it. It's super interesting, too, how people's palates have evolved. I remember when I first got into beer, like, wheat beers were a super top style and now to see IPAs be a super top style and then sours to start to come in more. A nugget of information I picked up over the years that I thought was fascinating is that there's not anything in nature that is sour that we're supposed to be consuming that does not have a consequence. So for example, we can eat an entire well, this lemon. This is going to have a consequence tonight. I will have hardcore <laughs> oh, yeah, when I try to go to bed. Maybe more. But while we can eat an entire lemon, typically the consequence is that you're going to have really bad acid reflux. So there's something about IPAs and sours that relate directly to our caveman brain. That's oftentimes why we really 
preach at the barrel house, like you need to take three sips because that first sip is going to be your caveman brain saying, yo, homie, you're going to get sick if you keep on consuming this. That's why we start even now talking about it. Like my mouth is salivating, my jaws hurting. Those are all our caveman brains being like, hey, watch out. Then the second sip that kind of comes down. And then, you know, by the third sip, we can really tell if we love it. But I think that's so fascinating in educating consumers and new drinkers to sours. And something else that I'm completely loving, and I know you guys can't see this out in podcast world, but we're passing around all these different beers from all of us, and everybody's, like, giving thumbs up across the table. And it's incredible, too, that the wildly fermented stuff, just how different everybody's cultures taste. And that's why I think sours are such an incredible beer. When we talk about, you know, none of us really caring necessarily, like, oh, man, Matry did this, so now we're going to do this, and that will be great is that we're all kind of paving our own paths. And even if we were to try to do the same exact beer somebody else would do on the wild side, it would be impossible to be able to replicate because we all have our own house funk and fun stuff going on. But yeah, the beers, like everybody here, I feel super blessed to be able to be a part of this because these are amazing beers. Full disclosure, I probably take somewhat of a selfish approach to this, you know, brewing fresh beer for years and years super awesome this was that next step to go down and work with these cultures and develop these flavors and watch them develop and then watch them develop and then have to go down the drain and all of that stuff so it's so like i just and really geek on doing that downstairs and it's awesome that people like it uh you know anybody else why why do you why do you do this um just like for me it's more of a romanticism with it um i love blending i love trying different barrels and seeing how i can make one beer taste completely different with another one or how i can complement one style with the other one with the ideology before doing it is you know i'm going to create this beer to have higher acid this one more bread i'm going to oversaturate this one with fruit and i'm going to have this one just a little bit lighter and then i'm going to blend them together to make a specific product you know, that, it reminds me more of wine. I've, I've told a lot of people this. I've always said if, if I get out of beer, I'm going into winemaking to be a cellar dweller. I want to blend. You know, that's just what sour beer really is. That's where I've gotten a lot of my, you know, techniques, a lot of the information that I know on how to make a sour beer, how to make a proper sour beer. Obviously, winemakers aren't trying to get Brett in there unless they're an orange winemaker, but I don't know how to speak Georgian or whatever they speak, so I don't know how to talk to them about that, but um, it's, it's really just, for me, it's, it's the art, it's the beauty, it's the romanticism behind it, it's the freedom, um, and then it's really just being one with the oak and just kind of understanding it. Um, you know, when you're doing French versus uh, American oak with the microoxygenation and how it changes, how one's going to be more acidic versus the other, how your temperature swings can make something taste a lot different. It's just all the variables that you have to think about. And then once you kind of think you have it down, you don't. But then when you think you do have it down and you got it right, it's just the most satisfying feeling you ever have because you're like, I thought this was going to work, and it did, and I did it right, and I'm so damn happy. But other times it's like, it didn't work, but I learned from that. And that's how I'm going to do it differently going forward. You know, it's just it's just always a learning experience, and it always humbles you because you always have to take a step back and realize it's bacteria and wild yeast. It's not brewer's yeast that's been trained for thousands of years to get to a point where you know it's going to always end. It's 
for me, it's it, you know, there's there's a lot about craft beer, even you know, beer definitely, but craft beer that it's become very um, commodity like. Like you know that you can just walk down to the store and grab a six pack of whatever that favorite beer you have is and throw it in your fridge and mow your grass and crack one open and drink it and it, it becomes just so normal and so so like common and there's something about beers like this that are just a little bit more special even from the drinker side not necessarily the you know obviously from the production side there's a lot of other things that go into it but um just from the drinker side it just it always feels so much more <coughs> special when you crack one open and you drink it and you it doesn't taste the same as anything you've had before even that same bottle you know we you know that 2010 lambic though you know it it's different than it was the last time i had it it's different than the time before that it's always changing evolving and it, it's it's special it's, it's it's i mean and that's the same for us too like if you're doing a true bottle condition where you're not hitting it with a pre-carbonation and then finishing off with a sugar fermentation out i mean i can tell you times where i've blended a few barrels together and I got a flavor where I wanted it and then I conditioned it and I try it a month later and it's completely different. Yeah. You know, it's just the, the you know, the pressure and the stress that yeast is going through and then the flavors that it's giving off is just completely different. You're like, damn, you know, I bottled this specifically because it had a clean lactic acid and now it's got like this pop of like minerality and more breads coming out. This is not how it was when I packaged it and that's even more enjoyable. That's, talking you know even going to what luke's saying um and, and i told i touched on this earlier with the types of beer that we make we we stick to when we make our barrel aged product it's always the same we go through the same process we usually use usually every time we use the same grain bill uh, we hit the same starting gravities same mash schedule because from that point forward there's so many different variables and all the barrels change and that's where we get our ideas or our inspiration for a next upcoming release. It's never, I've got this idea and I'm going to use passion fruit with, you know, uh, tangerine with this. And we're going to brew this beer from start to finish and it's going to come out like this. You just can't do that. Uh, especially when you're aging in individual barrels. Uh, you know, with some of the other beers, you know, and we do have some intentionally pitched batches that, you know, we do also do pasteurization on as, you know, just to ensure... And, you know, to touch on that for just one second, and we'll come back into this. There's a reason that we do that. One, obviously, in some cases, you know, using canning lines, um, you don't want to infect your canning line. Uh, or if you're using mobile canning, you know, they'll, they'll probably shoot you in the head if they find out what you did. Uh, <laughs> but uh, most importantly, you know, we, we also offer draft versions, as so does Arban Artifact. And, you know, if you sell your beer to a bar that's sour and, and you know, unintentionally soured or you know aged barrel aged keep in mind that that line is always going to be infected so if they put something on behind it like an ipa and it'll sell through it very quickly you know the chances of getting you know a bacterial infection in the beer is, is high so you know we do have accounts that buy those um uh, spontaneously fermented beers that have a dedicated sour line enough to deal with that so anyway i just want to touch on that real quick because i yeah. don't think that was mentioned um but, uh, you know, going back to the inspiration behind our beers, you know, every barrel is different. So when we're, you know, we've got a batch that's gone through the fooder process, they're into the individual barrels. Uh, we'll go out and start pulling nails and try things maybe six months in or nine months in or 12 months in. And we'll start saying, oh, my gosh, I got an idea for this. These four barrels 
start this kind of evolution and then we'll bring in two more and oh my gosh that would be great with this or let's blend with this or so to, to go back to what Luke's saying it's all about the blend at that point uh, the process in making these beers there's no rocket science behind it it's it's pretty basic beer brewing at best well, it's it's been done for yeah. for centuries. You know, it's it, it was it was done before the all this cultivated yeast and the IPAs and all that stuff. It was um, done a little differently because I mean, in, with the intention behind it. But um, it, this was how it started. You know, right. it uh, it's it's exciting. It's 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 it, it, like I said, I just keep going back to it being an exciting time to be a beer drinker. Um, how do you guys? think we as a uh, a bigger community a uh, a beer community can help kind of growing what this is as far as the drinkers go you know the the, the education side maybe what you know how do we do that i think this right here will be huge yeah i mean we're trying to get our consumers uh, more interested and educated on sour beers and it's difficult because we're <clears throat> excuse me constantly putting out different clean beers um just to get it on the radar for them. Um, I mean, education, I guess, is key. Um, yeah, it's hard to maybe drink an aggressive sour if you're not used to them. And I'll put it this way. Like maybe maybe if you don't like a Saison, um, but you can appreciate it. Um, like, oh, you know, it's not my style, but I could tell that this was made well, it was made with care. Um, trying to get that with sours is so tough. People just, if it's love it or hate it, you know, if it's too sour for them, they're going to spit it out and say, nope, nope, don't. not like, wow, that was, it was interesting how they made that and I appreciate it. You know, it's, it's, so I don't have the answer, right. <laughs> but maybe just some sort, yeah, education and, and listening to podcasts like this would help, you know. Uh, we've had a, a lot of good luck with framing things in food, in terms of food. Um, like Lindsay was saying earlier with uh, people eating his sour stuff, um, we don't eat anything bitter now. Like, culturally, yeah, we don't eat anything bitter. We eat a lot of sour shit, but, like, nothing bitter besides coffee and, like, chocolate and stuff like that. And even that's, like, often tempered with sugar. Um, so we've had a lot of really good luck uh, framing beers and people's, like, anchoring people's perception in terms of, like, uh, food first and then giving them the beer. Um, and I think we really need a lot more better stewardship in terms of beer. There's a lot of intentional obfuscation about like what something is or is not on labeling. Um, and it's not so much of like breweries here, but it is something that like drives me nuts. And, and I was really hoping to be able to call somebody out about it tonight, but <laughs> well, it's not. <laughs> so you're talking about, you know, people who are intentionally misleading consumers to um to, to, to sell something yeah i bought like a a beer in dayton three or four years ago that was like unintentionally soured and didn't know that until after i'd given the guy 20 bucks for it right and um i don't i, I don't know there's a lot of like weird labeling on like like what what a style is or isn't like uh Imperial Goza or Imperial Blinner or like all the stuff that just doesn't matter anymore because we don't like those styles are, are irrelevant. Like we're not we're not. I mean, it just it just doesn't matter. So it, it just it just seems really bizarre to like cling to this traditional wording that doesn't describe the beer anymore. I think knowing your audience is really important though too, and how you're marketing it. Um, I think a lot of people be really surprised that heavy wine drinkers are the biggest sour drinkers. 
Um, and to be honest with you, um, and this is not coming off in a sexist way, but female drinkers actually are heavier sour drinkers, I feel, than uh, males. Um, Dude, my wife hates beer, but likes sour. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> no, it's true, man. Um, it, it's, it's also, uh, well, I mean, think about it, you know, I don't know the TA of wines. They're typically around, what, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.5. They're pretty high. TA but like, is, is, what is, what is TA? Uh, total acid. So you're taking all your acidic components and you're blending them together versus tartaric acid, which is another way of forming it, which is just more like the one acid form. Um, and then you have pH. And then pH is basically just a, a, a measurement of hydrogen atoms or whatever. So it's, it's, it's the worst way to take a level of acidity. TA is the best way to take your total acidity. Um, but you're looking at, you know, if we're going to use pH just for an example, red wines are around 3 to 3.2. No, they're like, they're a lot higher than no, that. No, they're around 3 to 3.2. Um, but anyways, but so red wines are going to be a little bit more acidic. Um, and you're looking at that. You're looking at that, and it actually kind of blends in with how a lot of the sour beers are as well. So that's, you know, if you're marketing in the correct person as well, it also helps. We've started to know that people are more advanced in their sour drinking is on our packaging, we say either tart or sour, whereas before it just all said sour. But now we feel that some of our beers are definitely more sour and advanced and then there are other beers that's like oh this is more tart and approachable but uh to what you were saying about the wine too an incredible event that there hasn't i feel like beer dinners aren't as in vogue as they used to be back in the day but um an incredible way i always felt to educate people about the sour beers was doing it with a wine dinner and doing a wine and beer throwdown situation and finding the right chef to be able to do that and pair something with four different wines, four different sour beers and have them both taste amazing. It was so mind blowing and it's neat to be able to introduce those things to a totally different demographic that normally is like, I don't like beer. And I'm always like, I don't think that you've had, you just haven't found the right beer yet, but <laughs> we're going to find one for you. Don't worry. I went to a, uh, a beer and cheese pairing at Rheingeist um, a couple months ago. Um, and my God, it was fun. Like, you know, the, the, the table beer, which we're drinking right now and uh, tangerine beams. I'm just pairing those with something that I, you know, w- you know, before recently would have never thought that beer would go as well as it does with was just mind blowing. I mean, it's all sorry, I keep on moving the microphone. I'm it's sorry, all we're a little short on microphones. Right? You know, like between cheese and we look at sauerkraut and we look at kimchi and we look at these crazy beers and all these kind of like historical ancient foods that we don't <coughs> indulge in as much anymore. It's amazing to just see how the same bacterias that make a beer sour are also the same bacterias that are great for our gut or turning milk into cheese and it's total nerd out but it's amazing to pair the two it's funny because at our house people always ask well what do you brew at home i don't really brew at home anymore but i ferment meat i ferment (laughs) vegetables i ferment kombucha i ripen cheeses yeah I mean, I haven't made kombucha yet. That's probably my last little uh, venture, but I've done you gotta catch pretty much it. everything. You let it go <laughs> no, too right? far, goes vinegar. <laughs> but my kids and I, you know, we make sauerkraut, we make pickles, we, you know, um, anything we can ferment at home. Um, I actually have a, uh, a fridge that I've converted into um, a meat storage locker that uh, you know I ferment meat in, and all kinds of different bacteria into. So, 
Um, you know, because honestly, you do this day in, day out, every day, and we a lot of us have taken our passions and our hobbies and turned it into our careers. You almost need that escape, but you can't completely escape what you love. Yeah. And that's why I, I do those things at home. So if somebody's listening to this and they are maybe not as into sour beer as they want to be, or maybe you're into sour beer and you want to push yourself to kind of the next level, is is food kind of that gateway to kind of get into some of that other stuff? Keep drinking. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, yeah. Eventually. It's okay, honey. I'm but just pushing my palate, I swear. <laughs> food, food, food definitely helps. I mean, it cuts through, yeah. you know? It cuts through the acidity. Well, I've, I just, I've, I've found sometimes with some beer pairings, and not necessarily just with sour beer, but just in general, like there's, there's things that I find in a beer that I didn't taste before because I was eating it with something, but then afterwards sure. I always taste that thing or it always reminds me of that, and it's, it's just, it, it adds this whole other level to it for me, um, for me personally. Um, what do you guys, what do you want people to know about what's kind of, what's going on in sour beer in Cincinnati that you think we don't know as, as drinkers? Uh, when you buy a bottle that's bottle conditioned, get it really cold before you open it. 24 hours. That's kind of a joke. It might guys It's kind of a joke. But yeah, we actually get a lot of complaints about uh, beers foaming out. Well, a lot of times these beers are not ever seeing the cold for the most part when it comes to after package because they're bottle condition, they don't need to be cold like fresh beer. You actually want them, you know, to stay cellar temperature, so they do evolve. Or if you wanted to halt where that beer's at, you could throw it in the fridge and it might halt it, or it would definitely slow it down, right? Because right. it's at a colder temperature. But yeah, uh, the CO2 never has time to absorb when they're bottle conditioned. So if you put it in the fridge for, I mean, even a, you know, five six hours but 24 hours i think is recommended so that co2 has time to reabsorb back in the solution and uh then you won't lose all your beer so because we we actually get that's like the number one complaint and problem i think we have and if this was a video podcast you could experience that earlier <laughs> that, was, that was straight up mutilation side. that was proper carbonation that was proper just a little bit too much sediment for causing mutilation that's like the rudimentary uh, side of purchasing sour beer uh, outside of that you, you guys go for it I would just love for people to be aware of all the sour beer that's being made in town and encourage you to go out and try some, man. We're all doing different things. We've all got our thumbprints on. They're all awesome, man. Just go out and try one. I think, I think the other key, too, is um, location to purchase these type, types of beers. There's only a few places, and people always ask, well, why don't you sell your beer to the Kroger down the street, or why don't you sell your beer to the Meyer down the street? Well, a lot of people don't understand how these large chains work, and, you know, to get these types of beers in is um, difficult. And, you know, in, in large stores and large formats, you know, they're, you know they're, they have to look at how quickly they turn the beer. So I encourage everyone out there to go to your local liquor store, uh, your little beer store down the street, and if you don't see something from Brian Geister or Bernard Artifact or Mad Tree or from Rivertown or Sonder, you know, ask them. 
say, look, I'm looking for this beer. The more times they hear that, when one of our guys walk in, and I, I, we all have sales reps, uh, you know, they're going to ask, hey, I'm getting a lot of requests for this beer. Um, so that's that's probably the biggest push, Yeah, what are I those stores in town, I guess? To, to get I don't buy beer. <laughs> <laughs> Jungle Gems. Jungle Gems is they, my spot. They, they really yeah. leave you in the basement 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> my bad. <laughs> You know, no, I, I mean, calling out some of those stores right I, now I, might be cool. I, I, Jungle Gems is my go-to spot. It's, it's, but it's in my backyard, so it's, it's easy to go there. There's always somebody that can talk beer with you, and there's always something on the shelf that's, that's good. That's me. Yeah, and Roots Root Cellar, usually when I go there, I'll, I'll talk to whoever's working. They'll, they'll ask a lot of questions about what Madtree's got cooking, and I'll give them information. So, yeah, if people go to these stores and just ask questions, they usually have the information. Higher Gravity Northside. Yeah, yeah. I just went there uh, last week. Yeah, it was awesome. It's surprisingly cool. It's really cool. I think, too, back on you know what to say to the public at large, if you've had one sour beer that you did not enjoy and you've done the three sip thing and all of that's just not your gig, don't write off the entire sour category because of one. There's so many beautiful beers out there. Just keep on trying them until you find one that you really fall in love with. Yeah, there's a lot of very approachable sours that get you kind of introduced into that category. Do you guys have a lot of confusion with pre-boil acidified and post-boil acidified? We don't. Like your programs cross, cross like to the consumer or whatnot. No, not really. Not, we, we don't. Well, we yeah, we do. Yeah, like as far as like, why are you charging, you know, X amount for this bottle of beer versus like this six pack for nine ninety nine and yeah, getting through the pre-boil acidification being kettle sour or whatever you want to call it is just uh, the Americans way of turning quick sours um, and they're cheaper and they take less time which explain, is tank space. explain the process a little bit for uh, anybody that may not easily the I mean the process is you take wort being colored <clears throat> sugar water which is malted barley with water uh, send that to a vessel and add lactobacillus to it, let it sour out, move that to a boiling pot where you boil it to kill the lactobacillus. And then you can, there's still sugar in that wort with lactobacillus to now uh, ferment out the rest of the sugar. So now you're left with this lactic acid basically with uh, brewer's yeast and a little tiny splash of hops just to round it out and help it uh, be shelf stable and that's a, and then after that you can choose to add fruit or whatever but and that's basically the process and it's it's like you're talking like a couple of weeks versus sometimes a couple of years you know and then the the amount of fruit if you're if you're fermenting the fruit out you know on either side I think you tend to, or we tend to, or you have to add a lot more fruit on that on that wild side. 
Uh, so it just costs more money. Is that, is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, does makes, that make sense? That is. I, and I, I don't know that... <coughs> I feel like people are starting to get a little more educated on how it all plays in, but I don't know uh, in no, the larger sense. We have, I mean, at least Rheingeist hasn't made it easy. I mean, you know, it's craft beer. You just make, you know, you get an idea, you make some beer, and, you know, uh, I you, think you, you put it in a package. So, yeah, I mean, we're all growing together, if sure. you will, you know, and, and learning, you know, how to, to relay the message. Um, but, you know, Kettle Sours is where most of us, maybe outside of urban uh which is a little unique you know that's kind of where you start you start with fresh beer get that dialed in fair enough yeah well yeah going back yeah yeah but within within the last few years i guess that's yeah we've well it it really depends on what you're trying to achieve i think like peach dodo is probably a great example for rheingeist i'm gonna use nice melons for us which is our summer seasonal you know um we're just looking for that tart side you know, just to, we're not looking for it to be a fully round, you know, um, intense sour, getting the wood, getting the brett, getting all the characteristics. So for us, I think it's more or less what, what's the end product? What are we trying to achieve? And if we're, you know, for example, and, and again, I'm using nice melons because that's exactly how we make it. And I know that's the same thing with Pitch Dodo and probably a couple. We could go around this table and say the same thing. Um, but uh, we have, you know, a bunch of accounts, again, going back to you that want to put it on tap that we don't want to affect their line, that we want to make sure the price point's correct because these beers are featured at a lot of the large grocery chains and we have to keep that in mind when we make those beers. But I think for me, I look at it as flavor. If it's if it doesn't fit what we're trying to achieve, then we just won't make it, even if it is pre-boiled. I, I, I'm very curious to kind of the, the, the larger picture of beer drinkers, how many people um, are geeky enough that they are paying attention to how their sours are made or if, if they care. I, I, don't, I don't know. If it, you know, if it tastes good, is it, I don't. No, man, beer has been yeah. shwill for so long, <laughs> you know. It's, I, I, I think it, it's a small percentage that truly cares, but they're the loudest. Kind of situation. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> that's that's what we've encountered at least. Well, guys, I think that wraps it up. That's a uh, that's a very full episode of the Brewcast. Um, everybody, kind of go around, plug what you do, tell people how to find out more about your brewery. Josh, you start. Uh, I work for Urban. What did you want me to say? Just, what do you want? Tell people <laughs> he like to know your color again. Can you tell them your color? <laughs> um. I don't know, I work at Urban Artifacts. It's a lot of places around Cincinnati. And sometimes in Nashville and other parts of other places. I don't know. I've seen it in Knoxville. Oh, yeah, it's in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. It might be in Knoxville instead of Nashville. <laughs> it might, might, might be both. Who knows? Yeah, it's at the, certainly, <laughs> it is certainly at the tap room. I actually, it was funny, I was down, and we're getting off track a little bit, I was out of town um, last year sometime, um, uh, in, the, in the spring, I think, and I... Um, we spent the night in Knoxville on the way back because we couldn't make the whole trip because my child is a terrorist. And um, <laughs> there were surprisingly not a lot of breweries downtown where we were there. And I was like, well, I, I got to find somewhere to get something local. I got to get some good beer. And so I walked down the street and uh, found a little bottle shop. And I went in and I said, well, you know, what kind of beer do you have that's, that's, that's exciting? And 
I shit you not, they pointed me to Urban Artifact and Rivertown. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I'm from, I'm from Cincinnati. I need something else. And, and some, some Blackberry Farm, too, which I was like, there you go. That's, I can't get that at home. It's other stuff I can get. But it was, I, I shit you not, it was, it was, it was completely, uh, I don't, ironically funny. <laughs> So I'm going to tell people how to find mad trees. Yeah, they mad trees all around uh, Ohio, northern Kentucky, uh, Tennessee. Um, you're going to find the most stuff we have here actually in the tap room uh, in Oakley. And tell your bartenders that they need to put more sours on draft. That would help me a lot. Do we get another? <laughs> so Funk Day typically comes in the spring, and there was not one this year. Correct. Are we getting a Funk Day this year? <laughs> we're, we're still working on... Um, What's going to be at it? Where it's going to be? Everything. Yeah, it's Brady's where, got a lot where, of ideas. Where cooking. it's going to be? Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I know. We should we should dive into that a little bit. We can get, go get Brady. Get Mike all pissed off <laughs> since he's not here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we ideas are being thrown around. Awesome. For sure. That's interesting. Uh, we're up in Mason, so if you're north of Cincy, uh, come check us out. Um, I'm sure if you type in Sonder S O N T E R in the Google, you'll find us about all I know for our social media. Um, we also have a lot of uh, really good loggers. So. You guys have some great loggers. So it's, it's my more. This my is more. kind of a, a new series that I'm diving into a little bit, kind of the, the, the idea of doing panel, panel shows where I'm getting a lot of people from different breweries. And I think the next panel show is going to be loggers, the logger community of Cincinnati because Can't wait. there's some really great stuff happening. Again, how do people find Rheingeist if they don't already? <laughs> oh, man. I, I'd say just look up and you'll probably find it. No, uh, we've got a pretty big distribution chain. Um, but for what we're talking about specifically tonight, the Outer Reaches stuff, your best bet, kind of mirroring what Simon said, is, is to come down to the brewery. Um, we'll have a couple bottles in the merch store. I don't, you know, it kind of flips through what they have. And they've been putting a bit of it on tap throughout. More would help. Definitely. Um, but uh, it's just distributed around smaller amounts in the package format. Uh, that's about it. And then Rivertown. For us, of course, like us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Rivertown Brew. Of course, you could visit us, too, up at the Barrel House. So we're up in Monroe. Everybody thinks it's like two hours away. It's not. Just go up 75, depending on where you are. It's usually no more than 30 minutes anywhere from Cincinnati, <laughs> unless you had to add traffic time. But either way, it's worth the drive because we have delicious barbecue and beers. And pickles. Yeah. Some, some of my favorite pickles oh, at yeah, any restaurant. house pickles. Hello. But um, we self-distribute our beers now. So if there is someplace, an area where you live and you would like to know where we have beers around you, or if there's a favorite bottle shop that you frequent and you would love to see our bears there please just email me at info at rivertownbrewery.com and we'll get them out there but again i can't stress enough like this has been so incredible and if you're into sour beers visit all of us and you'll be in for a complete treat and make sure to uh to bring your tums as well because that's important (laughs) um i was actually really surprised when you guys did open the the barbecue restaurant how well sour beer goes with barbecue something i would have never paired it up with before but it's it's really good um i'm gonna probably be giving away some some tickets to the the crafted festival like this week um so i need to come up with some kind of a code word 
um, that people can then reply to a post on some kind of social media. Somebody give me a word. Tums. Tums. It's perfect. Will they get mad? Will Tums get mad? Um, I don't know. I, if they do, so what? Sue me. Tums. T-O-O-M-F. So keep... Keep your eye on social media. There will be a post sometime in the near future where you have to reply with thumbs <laughs> and then get one some tickets. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Um, thank you guys. Thank you all for doing this. Yeah. Um, I know that life is busy and um, I appreciate you guys all braving traffic to get down here to do the show. So um, check us out on social media, Cincy Brewcast, wherever you social your media and uh, subscribe to the show if you don't already um, if you do already tell all your friends to subscribe share it with people do that kind of th- that, 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 that thing you're supposed to do with podcasts okay Sensi Brewcast voice of Sensi Craft